Chapter Twenty of From Mud to Mufti by Bruce Bairn's Father. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Twenty, where wire meets sea, cracked cockside, cordial reception, chilly quarters. Rosendale is a paltry, unattractive little town near the sea in the Dunkirk direction. I and my suitcase arrived there in due course. I presented myself to the corps general. He graciously saw me in a chateau just outside the town which he used as his headquarters. He was a very famous French general, but there is no need to mention his name. I showed him my papers and explained to him at his request exactly what I would like to do. I wanted to go into the French trenches in that sector and thoroughly get into the spirit of what holding that part of the line was like. I also wanted to familiarize myself with the way the French soldiers lived and fought. He quite understood, and gave a few rapid orders to an officer who was in the room. He then told me that he had decided that I should go to a certain division who were at the time holding that part of the line which runs along the Isère Canal, and which had its left flank on the sea. This sounded very interesting as this sector comprised places of such war-historic interest as Dixmude, Newport, Fern, etc. A car was placed at my disposal, and I was whirled off along the flat, bleak, and occasionally poplar-lined roads up towards the front and towards the great Isère Canal, the scene of so much Belgian gallantry. It was very, very cold, and the long drive in the open car as the evening came on was not a particularly exhilarating performance. We at last arrived at a lot of sand hills, amongst which were some scattered villas of the sort that you will inevitably find at Belgian seaside resorts. This place, the driver announced, was Coxide, and this was where the division had its headquarters. My destination at last. Personally, the architecture and total surroundings of a Belgian seaside resort in peacetime I consider fairly unattractive. But under war conditions, I confess that I was bordering on a feeling of absolute revulsion at the general appearance. Cheap stucco and red-tiled villa on a wind-swept sand hill is bad enough at any time. But when there is a shell-hole through the roof, a couple of windows missing and a corner chipped off, its appearance is still more repulsive. There were a good number of these seaside atrocities standing about and it was in one of these that I found the divisional commander and all his staff to whom I reported myself. They had heard that I was coming, and as luck would have it, knew all about my pictures, and therefore I was saved the painful explanation which I have from time to time had to indulge in, that of telling officials what my work consists of. To explain my business to a man who has never heard of me or my work is a terrible ordeal. The subject is so large and the whole story so peculiar that I never know where or how to begin. Fortunately, nowadays, there don't seem to be many people who are unaware that there is such an individual existing as Bruce Barron's father, and that he happens to make a series of marks on bits of paper which a kind-hearted world has taken to calling cartoons. Things are not so hard for me now as they used to be, but you can imagine that for some time after I began to draw cartoons it was a bit trying to explain to some fire-eating general who had never heard of me and whose one bête noire was cartoons, that I was a licensed military cartoonist and wished to be allowed to wander all around his trenches so as to get the atmosphere and feeling of that particular sector. After a life spent in pondering on the theory and value of howitzers, 
road maps, discipline, and battles, a general is naturally a bit strange to the flimsy unreality and apparent uselessness of art. Oh, yes, I've had some trying times, believe me. However, here at Coxide I was most cordially, understandingly, and enthusiastically received by this French army commander, and my introduction was followed by my being allotted quarters and then going to lunch with the staff. They were a most happy, light-hearted group of officers, and all worked hard. The general himself, a short, thick-set, swarthy, strong man, was one of the brightest and most cheerful ornaments of the mess, a general at his work and a human being when it was over. All the group of officers connected with him were perfectly free and happy at that mess. All was brightness and freedom with, whenever necessary, a rigid and vigorous return to work and hard discipline. I was very much struck with that headquarters mess. I had occasion to have many meals there, and I also saw all the members at work, and was most forcibly impressed by the difference between their headquarters and the equivalent in the English army. Since then, having had similar experiences with the Italian and American armies, I am still more struck with the same difference to our own English equivalent. That frigid atmosphere which some of our headquarters can and do assume is entirely lacking in any foreign army. In any other army but ours, a second lieutenant, when at some off-duty period, say at dinner, can talk with his general and be answered and talked to by his general, like two human beings who have respect for each other's knowledge, each in his own sphere. You will frequently find with us that under similar circumstances a gloomy unintellectual silence is maintained with an occasional remark from the general which is followed by a sycophantic answer from someone of a rank no lower than a captain, whilst a second lieutenant, if there is one present, munches his toast in dead silence, consigned as he is to unquestionable ignorance at the far end of the table. I've had some myself. No offense meant, only a sight digression on insularity. After lunch at that cockside villa I was taken round and shown where I was to be stabled and from where I would make excursions to the various trenches in the sector. The place I was to live at was a hotel on the seafront. You will notice I say was and I still stick to that word. Of all the chilly, horrible hotels I think this one was the peach. Being almost winter, it was dark when I and my guide got there, and as I was taken up the uncarpeted, creaky, cheap stairs, with a zoov leading the way with a candle stuck in a bottle, I couldn't help thinking how unfavorably the place compared with the Savoy. A long bare corridor with the wind whistling down it through a window with no glass in it greeted us at the top of the stairs. Macbeth's castle was a cozy invalid's home compared with this. The Zoov, with his dark red Turkish-looking hat, led the way. Candle spluttered and blew about in the breeze. We opened a door on the right and the candle went out in the draft. The Zoov entered and readjusted the sheet of sacking across a broken pane of glass in the window at the far end. He then relit the candle and showed me my room. A bed, one chair and a washstand, all made out of a horrible, bilious, yellow-colored wood, and standing on a carpetless floor. Those were the contents, the other attractions consisting of a rattling window and a moldy smell such as one I imagine would associate with a derelict hotel. The Zoov, of course, could speak nothing but French. I can't do much at that, and as I fancy he threw in a little Arabic now and again, I found I could do nothing to establish an entente. I indicated with a smile and a few gestures that I was quite all right now, thanks very much, 
and leaving me the candle he went away. I sat on the bed which was damp from the sea air blowing through the open window. Outside I heard the waves breaking on the shore whilst inside the hotel was emitting a variety of creaky weird noises. The candle, burning with sudden dullness, was standing on the cheap washstand and apparently it was all it could do to illuminate the surface of that unattractive piece of furniture. Here I am at Cockside, and this is where I have got to live with the French soldiers, find ideas, and draw them, I thought to myself. If you knows of a better ole, go to it. There was no better ole, and if there had been I couldn't go to it. So I resigned myself to forthcoming life at Cockside Laban. End of chapter 20. Recording by Philip Gould.